Chapter Ten of The White Feather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The White Feather by P. G. Wodehouse. Chapter Ten Sheen's Progress. Sheen improved. He took to boxing as he had taken to fives. He found that his fives helped him. He could get about on his feet quickly, and his eye was trained to rapid work. His second lesson was not encouraging. He found that he had learned just enough to make him stiff and awkward, and no more. But he kept on, and by the end of the first week, Joe Bevan declared definitely that he would do, that he had the root of the matter in him, and now required only practice. "'I wish you could see like I can how you're improving,' he said at the end of the sixth lesson, as they were resting after five minutes' exercise with a medicine ball. I get four blows in on some of the gentlemen I teach to one what I get in on you. But it's like riding. When you can trot, you look forward to when you can gallop, and when you can gallop, you can't see yourself getting on any further. But you're improving all the time. But I can't gallop yet, said Sheen. Well, no, not gallop exactly, but you've only had six lessons. Why, in another six weeks, if you come regular, you won't know yourself. You'll be making some of the young gentlemen at the college wish they had never been born. You'll make babies of them, that's what you'll do." "'I'll bet I couldn't, if I'd learnt with someone else,' said Sheen, sincerely. "'I don't believe I should have learnt a thing if I'd gone to the school instructor.' "'Who is your school instructor, sir?' "'A man named Jenkins. He used to be in the army.' "'Well, there you see, that's what it is. I know old George Jenkins. He used to be a pretty good boxer in his time. But there! <laughs> Boxing's a thing, like everything else, that moves with the times. We used to go about in iron trucks. Now we go in motor-cars. Just the same with boxing. What you're learning now is the sort of boxing that wins championship fights nowadays. Old George, well, he teaches you how to put your left out, but— "'My golly, he doesn't know any tricks. He hasn't studied it same as I have. It's the ring-craft that wins battles. Now, sir, if you're ready—' They put on the gloves again. When the round was over, Mr. Bevan had further comments to make. "'You don't hit hard enough, sir,' he said. "'Don't flap. Let it come straight out with some weight behind it. You want to be earnest in the ring.' The other man's going to do his best to hurt you, and you've got to stop him. One good punch is worth twenty taps. You hit him. And when you've hit him, don't you go back. You hit him again. They'll only give you three rounds in any competition you go in for, so you want to do the work you can while you're at it." As the days went by, Sheen began to imbibe some of Joe Bevan's rugged philosophy of life. He began to understand that the world is a place where every man has to look after himself, and that it is the stronger hand that wins. That sentence from Hamlet, which Joe Bevan was so fond of quoting, practically summed up the whole duty of man, and boy, too. One should not seek quarrels, but, being in, one should do one's best to ensure that one's opponent thought twice in future before seeking them. These afternoons at the Blue Boar were gradually giving Sheen what he had never before possessed—self-confidence. He was beginning to find that he was capable of something after all, 
that in an emergency he would be able to keep his end up. The feeling added a zest to all that he did. His work and school improved. He looked at the Gottfer no longer as a prize which he would have to struggle to win. He felt that his rivals would have to struggle to win it from him. After his twelfth lesson, when he had learned the groundwork of the art, and had begun to develop a style of his own, like some nervous batsman at cricket who does not show his true form till he has been at the wickets for several overs, the dog-loving Francis gave him a trial. This was a very different affair from his spars with Joe Bevan. Frank Hunt was one of the cleverest boxers at his weight in England, but he had not Joe Bevan's gift of hitting gently. He probably imagined that he was merely tapping, and certainly his blows were not to be compared with those he delivered in the exercise of his professional duties, but, nevertheless, Sheen had never felt anything so painful before, not even in his passage of arms with Albert. He came out of the encounter with a swollen lip, and a feeling that one of his ribs was broken, and he had not had the pleasure of landing a single blow upon his slippery antagonist, who flowed about the room like quicksilver. But he had not flinched, and the statement of Francis, as they shook hands, that he had done very well, was as balm. Boxing is one of the few sports where the loser can feel the same thrill of triumph as the winner. There is no satisfaction equal to that which comes when one has forced oneself to go through an ordeal from which one would have liked to have escaped. "'Capital, sir, capital,' said Joe Bevan. I wanted to see whether you would lay down or not when you began to get a few punches. You did capitally, Mr. Sheen." "'I didn't hit him much,' said Sheen, with a laugh. "'Never mind, sir. You got hit, which was just as good. Some of the gentlemen I've taught wouldn't have taken half that. They're all right when they're on top and winning. Had to see them shape, you'd say to yourself, "'By George, here's a champion!' but let em get a punch or two, and, hullo, says you, what's this? They don't like it. They lay down. But you kept on. There's one thing, though. You want to keep that guard up when you duck. You slip him that way once. Very well. Next time he's waiting for you. He doesn't hit straight. He hooks you, and you don't want many of those. Sheen enjoyed his surreptitious visits to the Blue Boar. Twice he escaped being caught in the most sensational way, and once Mr. Spence, who looked after the Riken cricket and gymnasium, and played everything equally well, nearly caused complications by inviting Sheen to play fives with him after school. Fortunately, the Gottford afforded an excellent excuse. As the time for the examination drew near, those who had entered for it were accustomed to become hermits to a great extent, and to retire after school to work in their studies. "'You mustn't overdo it, Sheen,' said Mr. Spence. "'You ought to get some exercise.' "'Oh, I do, sir,' said Sheen. "'I still play fives, but I play before breakfast now.' He had had one or two games with Harrington of the schoolhouse, who did not care particularly whom he played with, so long as his opponent was a useful man. Sheen being one of the few players in the school who were up to his form, Harrington ignored the cloud under which Sheen rested. When they met in the world outside the fives court, Harrington was polite, but made no overtures of friendship. That, it may be mentioned, was the attitude of every one who did not actually cut Sheen. 
The exception was Jack Bruce, who had constituted himself audience to Sheen, when the latter was practising the piano, on two further occasions. But then Bruce was so silent by nature that for all practical purposes he might just as well have cut Sheen like the others. "'We might have a game before breakfast some time, then,' said Mr. Spence. He had noticed, being a master who did notice things, that Sheen appeared to have few friends, and had made up his mind that he would try and bring him out a little. Of the real facts of the case he knew, of course, nothing. "'I should like to, sir,' said Sheen. "'Next Wednesday.' "'All right, sir. I'll be there at seven. If you're before me, you might get the second court, will you?' The second court from the end nearest the boarding-house was the best of the half-dozen fives courts at Riken. After school sometimes you would see fags racing across the gravel to appropriate it for their masters. The rule was that whoever first pinned to the door a piece of paper with his name on it was the legal owner of the court, and it was a stirring sight to see a dozen fags fighting to get at the door. But before breakfast the court might be had with less trouble. Meanwhile, Sheen paid his daily visits to the Blue Boar, losing flesh and gaining toughness with every lesson. The more he saw of Joe Bevan, the more he liked him, and appreciated his strong, simple outlook on life. Shakespeare was a great bond between them. Sheen had always been a student of the Bard, and he and Joe would sit on the little veranda of the inn, looking over the river, until it was time for him to row back to the town, quoting passages at one another. Joe Bevan's knowledge, of the plays, especially the tragedies, was wide, and at first inexplicable to Sheen. It was strange to hear him declaiming long speeches from Macbeth or Hamlet, and to think that he was by profession a pugilist. One evening he explained his curious erudition. In his youth, before he took to the ring in earnest, he had travelled with a Shakespearean repertory company. "'I never played a star part,' he confessed but I used to come on in the Battle of Bosworth, and in Macbeth's castle, and what not. I've been first citizen sometimes. I was the carpenter in Julius Caesar. <laughs> that was my biggest part. Truly, sir, in respect of a fine workman, I am, but as you would say, a cobbler. But somehow the stage—well, you know what it is, sir—leads one week, Manchester the next, Brighton the week after, and travelling all Sunday— it wasn't quiet enough for me." The idea of becoming a professional pugilist for the sake of peace and quiet tickled Sheen. "'But I've always read Shakespeare ever since then,' continued Mr. Bevan, "'and I always shall read him.' It was on the next day that Mr. Bevan made a suggestion which grew confidences from Sheen in his turn. "'What you want now, sir,' he said, is to practice on someone of about your own form, as the saying is. Isn't there some gentleman friend of yours at the college who would come here with you?" They were sitting on the veranda when he asked this question. It was growing dusk, and the evening seemed to invite confidences. Sheen, looking out across the river and avoiding his friend's glance, explained just what it was that made it so difficult for him to produce a gentleman friend at that particular time. He could feel Mr. Bevan's eye upon him, but he went through with it till the thing was told, boldly, and with no attempt to smooth over any of the unpleasant points. 
"'Never you mind, sir,' said Mr. Bevan consolingly, as he finished. "'We all lose our heads sometimes. I've seen the way you stand up to Francis, and I'll eat—I'll eat the medicine ball, if you're not as plucky as any one. It's simply a question of keeping your head. You wouldn't do a thing like that again, not you. Don't you worry yourself, sir. We're all alike when we get bustled. We don't know what we're doing, and by the time we put our hands up and got into shape, why, it's all over, and there you are. Don't you worry yourself, sir." "'You're an awfully good sort, Joe,' said Sheen gratefully. End of chapter 10